So what we're doing this week is, again, taking everything we've learned from Second Peter in particular, uh, although a lot of these ideas also come from First Peter. But we're going to be, again, trying to, in particular, apply this. What does this look like? What is all of these warnings that Peter gives us about false teachers? How do we apply that to our lives? Uh, a few weeks ago, I made a comment about music and uh, something that someone had said to me uh, when we were discussing just the, the, the content of, of different music, uh, of Christian music, and the sources behind them, and just some of the, the content within them. And their response was, uh, well, am I supposed to, you know, am I supposed to look into every song? And when I first said that, there were a few laughs out there like, well, of course, yes, you should have a desire to make sure what you're receiving is true. I think it's easy, though, when it's put into a, a bubble like that, like I did a few weeks ago, uh, to look at that and go, oh, yeah, of course. Uh, of course we should have that desire to know what we're receiving is true, to test it with God's word. Uh, even if it takes us effort, even if it takes some time, because we don't want to be bringing into this worship service where we're worshiping God, we don't want to bring in falsehoods. And I'm prefacing it like this because I want us to be in the right mindset for looking at these things. Because I think far too often, whereas in theory, we get that. We understood that. We thought it was funny that someone would say uh, that they wouldn't do that. They wouldn't take that, that effort to make sure what they're receiving is true, what they're giving to God is true. That they're not taking in uh, uh, false teachings, false ideas, that they're not just lining someone's pocket for their own gain. But I think when the, the rubber meets the road, a lot of times, and I will throw myself out there as well, we switch to the other side and we go, well, is that that bad? Well, no, what I think they might actually mean there is this. Even though that's not what they said, even though I can only take them at what they've actually said, I, I'm going to reinterpret it so maybe it is actually right. Maybe that celebrity that, that calls themselves a Christian but lives a very distasteful life and shows no evidence of their belief in Christ no, 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 but you see what they're actually doing, what, what they're actually believing. Oh, no, they're just kind of, we have this desire to justify things. We have this desire to look at a source, at a song, at a teaching, at a teacher, at whatever it is, and try and find a reason why it's right <laughs> in its error. We don't look at what's true around it although sometimes we try and use that to justify the error, we look at something questionable and instead of putting it on display and going, okay, what does the Bible say about this? Is this wrong or is this right? We instead go to, well, I don't want to be judgmental. Well, they have so much other good stuff. Well, uh, is that really that far off? Well, I think we can still have fellowship even though they believe this. And we get ourselves caught in a trap. We get ourselves caught in a trap because when we're in that mindset, maybe what we got in that mindset on isn't even that bad. Maybe there isn't really an issue there. But the second you start that mindset, it's a slippery slope, and you will eventually start to accept more and more error. You will justify more and more error because you've already let it in. Like the Bible says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. 
once it gets in, it grows. Not that you should be uh, on a witch hunt, trying to see a demon behind every corner and just trying to prove why everybody's wrong. But you need to be objective. You need to detach a teaching, detach a song, detach a, a group, whatever it is, detach it from everything else and put the specifics on trial, not with the intent of proving it wrong, not with the intent of proving it right, but I'm not sure about this, or someone has said there is something wrong here. Let me examine it scripturally. Let me take it to the Bible. Let me test it to the one thing, the one thing that I can stand on as true. I can trust this. This is our objective reference, our point to judge everything else. And I want to make that clear right off the bat because that is the mindset we need to be in. Comparing all things with scripture. Not seeking to prove it right, not seeking to prove it wrong, but seeking to see what God says about it. Because we trust God more than we trust that band. We trust God more than we trust that teacher. We trust God more than we trust ourselves. Because we will lie to ourselves. What is the whole problem that got us to the point where we needed a savior. Trusting ourselves more than we trust God. That is the lie, and that is the lie that will continue to eat at you. Do you understand that? Do you understand that it will try and pull you down? So do not give that power. Submit yourselves, humble yourselves. This is what Peter's life, especially First Peter, was just dripping in, was that uh, humility, that call to humility. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. At the proper time, he will exalt you, casting all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. So that's our objective reference. That's our point to start this final, this summation, this, this culmination of looking into Peter's books. Is humility before God. Again, I said it at the beginning, and I'm saying it now. The main central point of both First and Second Peter, as Peter himself stated in the end of Second Peter, was about the sufficiency of Christ. Now again, those aren't the words that he used, but that's the, the way I'm saying it. You can also say the, the, uh, the need to be humble before our God, the supremacy of God over all other things, over persecutions, over false teachings, whatever it is, it's centered on Christ. And that was quite a big introduction but I wanted to get us laser focused and let's dive in. We're going to be looking at a passage that we used last week, because again, I think it's a really good summation of things and it's going to be our guiding reference this week. And that is Jude 17 through 23. But you must remember beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt, saving others by snatching them out of the fire. 
to others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. And that's really the idea that we're going to, main idea we're going to dive into today is how do we address false teaching, false teachers. And Jude gives us a wonderful picture in the last two verses. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Often, when it's just preached in theory, the, though it's good to just hear the raw words of the Bible and hear that, that theoretical, that knowledge realm of how we approach things is good. But in theory, sometimes we create it as this binary thing that either you are a false teacher defined by false teaching and you are to be uh, cast out and avoided, uh, that we are to uh, hate even the garment stained by the flesh, or you're completely okay. I really like how Jude shows that, no, no, no. Some people are going to have doubts. They're going to uh, uh, question things. They're not going to be secure and strong in their faith. They're going to uh, doubt uh, uh, what God has said in his word. They're going to doubt God's word. They're going to get things wrong because of their fear and doubt. They're going to have false ideas or false teachings mixed in them. How do we approach them? You have mercy on those who doubt. We are to take them and we are to love them and encourage them and build them up into truth. Others, they're in the fire. They are ensnared by false teachings and they themselves may be spreading those false teachings. Whether you want to call them a false teacher or you think that's too extreme of a term, I don't care. The point is they're ensnared by these ideas more so than just one who doubts. They're teaching these ideas to other people. And we are to love them enough to rescue them from the fire, to rescue them from the danger they are in, the compromising place they have put themselves. And finally, there are those who we show mercy to, and it's great that he uses mercy, and then immediately says, with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. There are going to be those people that are so corrupted, those false teachers that are so far beyond are personal. Again, these letters are personal, individual. They're beyond your ability to do anything about that. They're beyond your ability. They're so tainted that if you were to get involved with them to try and help them, it's only going to corrupt you as well. It's only going to cause damage. So you have to show mercy from a distance, love from a distance. So that's what we're going to talk about. When do we kind of deploy these different kind of steps, these different, uh, uh, when is it time to have mercy on someone by who's doubting? When is it time to snatch them out of the fire? When is it time to just cut the rope and separate? So let's establish a few things. A few weeks ago, we talked about the gospel. Uh, before I, I went into uh, the condemnation of false teachers, we talked about the gospel, uh, getting that right. I'm not gonna reiterate that, but again, that's our foundation. That's kind of where, where we start. And moving from that, Matthew 18, 18 through 20. Truly, I say to you, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them. 
I gave the completely wrong verse. It is a good verse. Uh, I could make, I could pretend that I meant to put that and actually make it sound really good. Uh, but we're just going to skip right ahead to First Timothy six three through four. I was just building a, a point by point first case one, here. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am. So God's with us right here. He's taking care of you. Yes. See that that was actually the route I was going to go if I was going to not admit my mistake. Uh, <laughs> But 1 Timothy 6, 3 through 4. 1 Timothy 6, 3 through 4. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing understands nothing. He is an unhealthy, he has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissensions, slander, evil suspicions. We're, we're talking about right teaching, right doctrine, which was the, the Matthew verse I was supposed to, to get, which was about teaching uh, what accords with uh, God's word. But now he's switching a little bit to if anyone teaches doctrine, that is, does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, go to that idea of trying to justify things, trying to look at something that's, that's partially wrong, but go, well, maybe. What does God say? God said that he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Again, we want to be like, well, okay, that's talking about someone who's in that last stage of Jude that's just so corrupt that we need to cut the cord. No, he's just saying that when you teach, no qualification, when you teach a doctrine that does not agree with sound words, you're puffed up with conceit and understand nothing. In that moment, in that teaching, you are outside of Christ. Not that you're not saved, but you're outside of him, his teaching, his word. And you need to be corrected. Otherwise, all you're producing is controversy, quarrels, uh, envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions. You're only causing damage. And I'm sorry, but we saw a long time ago when we looked at Ananias and Sapphira, God does not tolerate corruption in his church. And that was the message he so massively displayed in establishing this church when these two people lied to God about what they had done. Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. There will be people who not only claim to know Christ, but will do many mighty things claiming to be doing it in the name of Christ. There will be many people ensnared by false ideologies that will never actually find and know Christ, but will still do so many things. A lot of people try and read into this, well, it's, you know, they're not good things. They're just doing these bad things. It doesn't clarify. This could be someone who is well, I, and I should have included this first. We talked about it last week, but Philippians, uh, where Paul says, uh, he's talking about people who are preaching the gospel for wrong motivation, wrong reasons, to essentially to spite Paul, because he's in prison. And he says, you know, I rejoice that the, the gospel is being preached. Because wherever the gospel is, there is power. Wherever the gospel is, souls will be saved. 
But at the same time, throughout Philippians, he again and again condemns those people that are doing this and eventually calls them dogs and evildoers. So there would be people that even preach the gospel but don't even know it and accept it themselves. Again, talk about having to snatch people out of the fire. They'll believe. There will be people that believe they are saved, that they know Christ, but are not following him. This is not the time to play that game, that hateful game, because that's ultimately what it becomes of trying to justify someone and their teaching. This is about mercy. Do you understand what the book of 2 Peter is about? It's about mercy. That's a strange thing with how fiery Peter condemns false teachers and false teaching. But if we do not condemn it, if we do not understand it, if we do not call it out, then all we're doing is spreading hate because people will be ensnared by it and pulled down. People, uh, the teachers themselves, will never know the truth. There won't be people snatched from the fire. God takes no pleasure. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. God takes no pleasure in condemnation. It's his desire to see souls saved. And that's why we've been commissioned with the gospel. It's also why discipleship is so important. So you don't leave someone locked in a state where they think they know Christ and they don't. 2 Corinthians 11, 14 through 15. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Satan's not going to come to you as uh, an obviously evil being. He's going to come to you as a deceiver. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. As servants of what? Servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. That's a scary, scary sentence right there. Their ends will correspond with their deeds. Again, fire, snatch them out of it. It's also one of the challenges that I always get whenever I uh, run into and interact with Mormon missionaries. Well, just look at, look at us, look how good we are. They don't say those words, but that's what they're saying. You know, you're supposed to you know, judge, judge us by our fruits and look, look at us, look how good we are. They know that, that uh, Mormons have a reputation of outward righteousness. Not if you go to Salt Lake, it's a completely different story there. Uh, they're very vicious actually, uh, especially if they know you're a Christian. But they have a large degree of outward righteousness. So did the Pharisees. We saw how Jesus condemned them. But they're disguising themselves as servants of righteousness. They're doing right actions, right good things, good deeds, things that are legitimately good, but they're doing it on a wrong motivation. They're doing it falsely. They're doing it laden with false teachers. They are like... Like Christ said about the Pharisees, they're whitewashed tombs. They're dead on the inside. Okay, now that we've kind of gone through right belief is important, there's going to be people who don't believe rightly, and in fact there's going to be people that have deceived themselves in thinking they know the truth when they don't, and there's going to be people that disguise themselves as servants of righteousness when they're really serving the devil. So let's bring up a definition I gave a couple weeks ago. Biblical doctrine refers to teachings that align with the revealed word of God, the Bible. False doctrine is any idea that adds to, takes away from, contradicts, or nullifies the doctrine given in God's word. Again, adds to, adds to the Bible, takes away from the Bible, contradicts the Bible, 
or nullifies the Bible. For example, any teaching about Jesus that denies his virgin birth is a false doctrine because it contradicts the clear teaching of Scripture. There's a lot of things we can compromise on. Say, if you have a different view of the order of events of the end times than I do, that's fine. We're disagreeing about something that there's room to disagree on. Say you, uh, you have two people that disagree on exactly, uh, you know, the one's Calvinist and one's Arminian. They disagree exactly on the exact order of salvation, but they both agree on the process. They both agree on the outcome. They both agree on who's at work. They agree on everything, just some very minor internal differences. That's fine. They're brothers disagreeing. Well, actually, they disagree like brothers. Uh, there's a lot of sibling, sibling rivalry that goes on in some of these arguments. Uh, but they're doctrines that stand on biblical doctrine, but just disagree on ex the exact operation of some of these things. There are things we can't disagree on. But let's start to, again, break this down into a little bit practical steps. And we're really focusing on those three different things we had, the, the mercy on the one who doubts, snatching the one out of fire, uh, hating the garment stained by the flesh, uh, severing ties with those who are too far out. Romans 14, 1 through 6, 13 through 15, and 21 as for the one who is weak in faith, or the one who is having doubt, welcome him, not, but not to quarrel over opinions. What did I just say about, you know, brothers squabbling? Uh, be very careful with things like that. One person believes he may eat anything, which is what, I mean, that the Bible uh, seems to hold that opinion. Well, the weak person eats only vegetables, which is not a condemnation of vegans. Do not take that. A lot of people eat vegan for uh, health reasons, and that's perfectly fine, but this is talking about for religious reasons. Uh, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Again, it's God who's at work. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? Who are you to pass judgment on God's servant? Uh, it is before his own master that he stands or falls. Again, we judge them by this, God's word, God's standard, the standard that he uses to look at people. And he makes it clear right here that some people are going to be weaker in the faith. Don't quarrel with them over that. Build them up. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day, observe it in honor to the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor to the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. Well, the, uh, the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. If you think something is wrong, it's wrong of you to do it, even if you're wrong in that opinion.
I should uh, always be careful to not lose my place when I... <laughs> For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. What does the Bible just absolutely push over and over again? Love. They will know us by our love for one another, the love of the brotherhood for one another, the love of the body of Christ, the true community that we now have in Christ. But in this case, you're no longer walking in that. You've broken that. By what you eat, do not destroy, destroy the one for whom Christ died. Powerful word there, destroy the one. Verse 21, it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Not that you personally can't partake of these things ever, but if you know someone struggling, the best way I know to communicate this is if you have a friend who uh, struggled as an alcoholic and has gotten sober, what do you not do around them? Oh, it's it's the same concept here. When you're around someone, understand them. If they're a weaker brother, if they're in a place where they think they need to be not doing something or am doing something or should be doing something, whatever it is, sacrifice that right when you're with them, not so that they stay where they're at, but so that you do not cause them to stumble. And what do you do in that circumstance? If you run into someone who is having doubts, who has got themselves into a tizzy about things that they shouldn't be mixed up about, uh, if you are capable, if you are at a point in your Christian walk, if you are mature enough and judge this heavily and rightly, do not assume you're mature enough. If you know you're mature enough in the faith, you have an obligation to disciple that person. Doesn't mean in a formal sense of, you are now my disciple. (laughs) But to be there for them, to uh, encourage them to study, to uh, check in on them, to try and see them grow. And sometimes people won't want that. They won't want you to talk to them about things. So also have the wisdom to go, okay, you need someone else and that's fine. I'm going to pray for you that God brings the person that you need in your life. And don't pray that, you know, the, okay, well, now I'm good. My hands are, my hands are clean. I said the I'll pray for you thing. <laughs> no, honestly, seek knowing that God is at work, not you. And if you are not mature enough, if you're a... Uh, I'll use this analogy we're talking about uh, something else in a Bible study uh, the other day. Who went to school and had, you know, in like kindergarten or second grade, had a third grade or sixth grade or whatever it was, reading buddy? Who remembers doing reading buddies? Anyone do reading buddies? Oh my goodness, no one did reading buddies. So that makes that harder. But when I was in school, when I was in kindergarten, We had a second grade reading buddy. Because as a kindergartner, I couldn't read even the the kindergarten books. None of us could. So we had a second grader come in. A second grader could read the kindergarten level books. And so they helped us. And when it was in third grade, we were getting to, you know, more complex books. We're getting up to them chapter books. Uh, So we had a sixth grader come in who's confident in this reading to read with us and help us. And then eventually you got to be the reading buddy and help the younger kid. That's discipleship. Now, if you're a first grader, you're still trying to process what you learned in kindergarten, you're not ready to go be that reading buddy. Even though you're more mature than them, even though you, quote, learned, even though... I think there's a huge question of if you actually learned it yet. It seems like we repeat things in school over and over again. It takes us a while to actually learn it. But even though you're on that next level, you're not equipped yet 
to go back to someone at that lower level and teach them. So know what level you're at. If, again, if you're a first grader and they're a kindergartner in their faith, you're not the person to disciple them. You can encourage them, you can, you can help them, but you need to go and find them that older reading buddy. You need to find the person and often it will be, hey, this person's discipling me, let's go bring them to this person, let's encourage them to get uh, that growth. Again, this is, this is what it means to have mercy on the one who doubts, who has some mixed teachings that they shouldn't have in there and to build them up. That's what it looks like. It's to be, the, be a reading buddy. It's to abstain from things that might cause them to stumble until you bring them to a point. Maybe you never will. We're all gonna have our proclivities. We're all gonna have our things that we don't uh, give up. But your goal is to elevate them in Christ. So again, I hope I spoke a little bit to the idea of helping the one who doubts and uh, discipling, because that's really what that is. But let's move forward. And this will start to get a little bit faster for the last two, because they kind of go a little bit more hand in hand. Matthew 18, 15 through 20. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Was there any qualification in that? No, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church the local church, us. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Rope, cut. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among you. See, I did end up using that verse. Uh, but in its right context this time. But it's church discipline. You want to know how you deal with uh, snatching someone out of the fire. You want to know how you deal with uh, a false, someone that has false teaching in their life. Uh, false teaching is sin. It's church discipline. And church discipline is a mercy. It's not about condemnation. It's not about cutting the cord and severing. It's about gaining your brother. It's about snatching them from the fire. It's about calling them out of their error and back to Christ. So again, the last two things kind of go hand in hand. The snatching out of the fire and the, abstain the hating, even the garment stained by the flesh. Because it's a process. If you have someone that is teaching things they should not. You have to call them out on it. And again, in a wise way, knowing the difference between when it's someone that's has idea, well, I have to do this a certain way and I can't eat this and I have to do this, that's added little things. No, you, you don't, <laughs> you don't call them out on that. You have mercy on them. You disciple them because they need that growth. But when someone's being flagrantly uh, against scripture, when someone's teaching what they should not, you don't just go, oh, well, I guess I just need to disciple them a little bit better. Uh, oh, well, I guess that's not that bad. And, you know, that, that rotten apple is not going to spoil the whole bunch. Uh, no, you call it out. There is time you need to address it, need to address it. And it's a mercy, because if they listen to you, you gain, you gain them. If not, you have to elevate it and elevate it. The whole time it's a pleading to abandon the sins. But again, we have some practical with this. We have an example of this in Corinthians. And we're going to look at this real quick. 
And this is our last, this is our last scripture, so I'm, I'm actually getting to the very end. Uh, and we're going to tie it all together. So 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 13. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Again, they did the, the oh, well, is that really that bad? Oh, do, do you really need to? They were doing that. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in the body, I'm present in spirit. And as if present, uh, Paul, he never lets go of this church. He always kind of retains his authority as an elder and a pastor there. Uh, <laughs> they're a child that needs a lot of hand-holding. Uh, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, uh, where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there also, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, hating the garment stained by the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Church discipline is a mercy, but sometimes that mercy means you boot them out the door and you leave them to the mercy, they're not the mercy, you live at the mercy of their sins so that hopefully through that destruction, they see the error and come back. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. Get rid of this guy so that you, the church, may be healthy again as you are really unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexual immorality, immoral people. We let so much of that into the church. I mean, there's a church in my hometown that was, that was literally known as the place you could go and hide uh, your, your divorce. That you could leave your wife and go there with a new woman and they wouldn't ask a question. Uh, not at all meaning that sexual immoral, that the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. Look, you're not to judge those in the world. They're already under condemnation. He's talking about separate yourselves from the ones in the church. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater reveler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Oh, well, is, is it really that bad? Or are they really, really uh, uh, have that much of a problem with getting drunk? They really had that much problem with, with uh, sexual immorality? Or they really have that much issue with idols? Or, uh, you know, they only, they only stole a little bit. Uh, is it even really stealing? No! Not even to eat with such a one. And why? For the mercy of seeing them come to repentance. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So, practical. Practical speaking, the one who doubts you have mercy by discipling them or finding someone that can. 
by not doing things that are going to cause them to stumble. Essentially, you treat them like you would a child that doesn't know better, that you're trying to build up and grow and learn. But there are other ones where you're going to need to take heavier steps, where you're going to need to implement church discipline. And there's far too little of that done in this country. Far too little. Not too little because we're not seeing people kicked out of the church all the time. Too little because we're not seeing the first steps implemented. Going to people, calling them to repentance, and seeing them repent. Trusting God enough when he says that, hey, I will be with you in this. I will be with you in this. And it is a mercy, and you will see people return to truth. And there are going to be those people who you need to cut the cord with. Now, praise God, because he shows us one last thing. And because I didn't want to have to read a bunch more and take a lot more time, uh, I didn't quote it, but... In 2 Corinthians, we see the restoration of that one that was booted out the door. Even the one where they had to cut off, you know, cut the ties with, kick him out, hate the garment stained by the flesh. That mercy, and that's why Jude called it a mercy, that mercy saw him come back to Christ. But when it comes to false teaching and false teachers, we don't play games. That is what I'm getting at here. That is what uh, uh, this pattern has shown. That is what all this shows. You don't play games. And it's not just about you. In fact, it's mostly not about you. It's about them. It's about, <laughs> it's 90% about them. And then it's also about the people that they're teaching to. But this mercy of, of separating them, this mercy of cutting ties, this mercy of calling out their sin, this mercy of calling out their error, is about seeing them restored. Now, there are going to be those, again, there are going to be those where that happens. You cut the tie and they never come back. And that is a brilliant indicator that they're one of those ones who are going to hit Christ at the end and say, Lord, Lord, did I not prophesy in your name? Did not cast out demons in your name? Did I not do mighty works in your name? Christ will say, depart from me. I never knew you. I get it, though. It's so hard to approach a teaching, a teacher, a friend, uh, a church member, and say, that's wrong. What you're doing there is a sin. And I mean that both in your teaching is a sin or even just your sins in general, because we have to remember all of uh, the command there for church discipline. But again, be wise and discerning. Just like in discipling, if you're not at that point where you're ready to take on and help someone else, if you're not at a point where you can, you know what someone's teaching is wrong, but you're not ready to, well, let's say you have someone who's uh, uh, highly educated and trained, uh, is particularly in theology, and you're not. It's probably a good idea to go and talk with someone that's more on their level and get that person to come with you. And that may feel like, oh, well, aren't you skipping step one? No, if you're not equipped to be able to communicate with this person, and they're just going to intellectually destroy you, because a lot of teaching, bad teaching gets hidden behind intellectual prowess, take someone else with you. Take someone of a maturity that can handle the situation. Also know your ability to confront things. If you can't, if you're bad at confrontation, <laughs> whether you're, you know, way 
too timid about it or you're a sledgehammer, find someone else. Be wise. The whole point is to just make sure you're going through these steps. And I hope through this, I've given some legs to what we talked about in 2 Peter, to uh, false teaching, how we address it. Now, again, there are those people that are just even going to be seen from a distance. They're not, they've got their own, you know, obviously Mormons. They've got their own church, their own system. They're a completely separate religion. Obviously, we don't need to go run down the street to the Mormon church, whichever direction, uh, bust through the doors and be like, it's church discipline time. No, they're, they're not, they're not a part of the church. They're already not a part of the church. So it doesn't mean you need to go bust down the door of every false teacher and start uh, whipping out a Bible and let's go through Matthew 18, guys. Let's, let's implement church discipline. They're going to be ones where, okay, they're not even in the church. Mark and avoid. Tell other people not to follow this. But again, my, my real legs on this was, what do we do in the church? What do we do in our house? As Peter said in 1 Peter, judgment begins within the household of God. We need to get our affairs in order. Because if we're not, we're not walking in love. And if we're not walking in love, we're not showing Christ. Because it's him, him who's at work and his gospel that's important. And that is going to finish our journey through First and Second Peter. Now, the encouragement I'll give to you, and this should be any time, any time you go through a series in church, go back and read the text. Go back and read First and Second Peter. Now that you've been given some tools, because that's really all I've given you is tools, read it again and see the things that have been brought up. See the things in their context and start to not make it as head knowledge, but make it as wisdom, make it applied to your life. I can't do that part for you. I've given you what God says. Now you've got to take that next step of growth. You've got to hide it in your heart. You can't just be the kid who's really good at memorizing things, memorizes multiplication tables, busts through the, the tests on multiplication, and then is thrown a new problem and can't, can't put the two numbers together. Apply what you've learned, turn it to wisdom, hide it, your, his word in your heart so that it becomes something that is a part of you and not just stuck up here and useless. That's why I wanted to try and give it some kind of legs today before we end. So if you bow with me in a word of prayer, we'll finish this journey.